Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. As Chris said, we're starting a new series uh, today, and we've called it Sailing True in a Culture Storm. And my task in this first message is to kind of set the scene for what we want to talk about over the next few weeks. So um, let's begin. Um, 1964, way before most of you were born, Bob Dylan penned the lyrics of his now very famous song, The Times They Are A-Changing. In 1970, Alvin Toffler published his now celebrated book called Future Shock, which was a study of what happens to people as they are overwhelmed by change. And then again in 2000, Dylan wrote another song, the lyrics of which go, People are crazy and times are strange. Locked in tight and out of range. I used to care, but things have changed. And Bob Dylan and Alvin Toffler have proved to be prescient. They've proved to be quite prophetic in their predictions since things have changed. They have and are changing at a disquieting rate. We, we live in a time of massive and for many absolutely disorienting change. Futurist Leonard Sweet makes the claim that we've actually moved beyond what we are calling, what we, what we call change. He says that change is no longer an appropriate epithet for what is transpiring in our culture. And he goes on to say, change is when you, know, when you have to do better what you already know what to do. But he says, we find ourselves in a place where we have to do what we don't know. Change itself, Leonard Sweet says, has changed, and it's coming at us at warp speed. You know, for many of us, the world is almost unrecognizable from the one in which we grew up. The Janet and John world of my childhood has been swept away by a tsunami of change. And if you don't know who Janet and John were, ask your grandparents, because they probably went to school at about the same time I did in the 1950s. The digital watch that some of you people are wearing tonight has more computing power in it than was available in the world in 1961. And for some of you, you have more computational power in your car than all the computers combined in the Apollo spacecraft that took Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin to the moon in 1969. And we aren't talking just about 50 years ago, imagine trying to explain to somebody, even just two decades ago, at the beginning of this millennium, you imagine trying to explain to them that the world's largest taxi company owns no vehicles, Uber. That the world's largest hotel company owns no hotels, Airbnb. That the world's largest retailer has no inventory, Alibaba. And that the world's largest social media company has no content, Facebook. If you were explaining that to somebody in, in, in the year t 2000, I'm sure the question would be, what, what, what's social media? Random events and changes are coming at us so fast that for many the world seems quite out of control. Um, I think we're all aware of a pandemic, not of COVID-19 and its variants, but of anxiety that literally seems to be sweeping the world and affecting particularly young people. 
Rabbi and family therapist Edwin Friedman wrote a book called The Failure of Nerve and he said anxiety escalates as society is overwhelmed by the quantity and speed of change. So we're living in a time of massive, unprecedented change. I think in our Western world we've done our best to convince us, uh, to convince ourselves that change is good, that we've got it under control. Reminds me of a bumper sticker I saw which said, change is good, you go first. We tend to think, yeah, we've got this. We're well on the way to conquering nature. We've harnessed the power of the sun, the wind, and the waves, and we're well on the way too to civilizing and conquering human nature. Authors like Steven Pinker and Azilk are telling us that life is getting better and better. Life expectancy is increasing, poverty is decreasing, war and violence is waning worldwide, and global living standards are on the up and up. And so if we were to graph it, it would look like this. Sure, it's got its ups and downs and its bumps, but essentially it's up and to the right. Now, there is some truth in that scenario, but I suspect the idea that we have nature under control has proven to be considerably overstated. In 2019, the COVID-19 pandemic hit our world like the Boxing Day tsunami hit the Indian Ocean in 2004. The death toll from COVID-19 and its variants is 15 million and counting. And we all know that life has been disrupted at every conceivable level. In addition to that, of course, the impact of climate change has arrived faster and more intensely than we anticipated. And the so-called 100-year events seem to be occurring on a weekly basis. And now they're talking about 1,000-year floods and fires and global temperatures. Perhaps if we think about it, nature is not ours to control. And then, of course, on February the 24th, Russia invaded the Ukraine and the world was shocked. Nobody, with the exception of the U.S. intelligence agencies, predicted this. And the most often heard question after that invasion was, how could this possibly be happening in 2022? Clearly, we haven't civilized human nature any more than we have control of the natural world. And these events have conspired to shatter our illusory notion that things are under control. The pandemic, the violent collision of competing global visions, globalization, massive cultural and technological change have impacted our world at breakneck speed and society is reeling under the impact of these complexities. Mark Sayers is a pastor and uh, might be described as a futurist and he observes that our world has moved from a complicated one to a complex one. And you could say, well, Don, aren't those pretty much essentially the same thing? What's the difference between complicated and complex? Well, Sayers offers an illustration to differentiate the two. He says, imagine trying to predict the winner of a tennis match between two evenly matched professionals. If you were going to try and predict it, you might want to study their recent form, their fitness, their confidence levels. You'd obviously consider their playing service in which which they preferred, was, was, is it hard court, is it grass, or is it clay? To make it a little more complicated, imagine it's a doubles match, and then your prediction becomes a little more complicated. However, it still would operate much with the same principles as a singles match. The complicated task would move to a complex one, Sayers says, if you added another 300 players onto the court and allowed them to hit hundreds of balls all at once. That's the difference between complicated and complex. 
Margaret Heffernan in her book, Uncharted, How to Navigate the Future Together, says, complicated environments are linear, follow the rules, are predictable and function somewhat like an assembly line. They can be managed, repeated and controlled, and what that requires is efficiency. Complex environments, she says, are non-linear, don't follow the rules, are unpredictable, and feel for many unmanageable and out of control. A complicated world requires efficiency, a complex world requires adaptability and flexibility. The, the graph that we thought looked like this now looks like this. The axes are gone. The environment looks more like a seascape than it does a landscape. A sea change of transitions has meant that we've moved off the solid ground of terra firma onto the tossing seas of terra aqua. We've marched right off the map. Navigation on land is somewhat predictable. There are familiar, well-delineated landmarks, this mountain, that river. By contrast, water is ill-defined, uncertain, and in a constant state of flux and change. There are no fixed points on a seascape by which to get your bearings. The wave that was there and so large a minute ago has completely disappeared. And our environment presently resembles a seascape like that. Geographically, it wasn't that long ago that the biggest challenge map, maker, map makers faced was what colour to colour in the British Empire. Should we do it red or should we do it yellow? Now, new nations pop into existence without fanfare. 34 new nations in the last four decades have been recognised by the United Nations. Old empires and old nations are breaking up and, and we're in a state of uh, political flux. Financial landscapes also in complete flux. Companies that were trusted household names for generations no longer exist. For those of you who are old enough to remember, companies like Kodak, Polaroid, Borders, Blockbusters, Toys R Us. 88% of the 500 companies, the Fortune 500 companies of 1995 no longer exist. And since the beginning of the pandemic in, 19, in 2019, we've lost Hertz, Newsweek, Sizzlers, Crocs, which I don't think necessarily is a bad thing, and, and Cirque du Soleil. Netflix, who was largely responsible for the demise of blockbusters, themselves are in serious trouble. Zoom, whose stock um, was massive at the beginning of, of the pandemic, has seen it halved since 2021. SpaceX and Meta, Facebook and Instagram, if you're not sure, are tottering. Gen X shunning Meta and heading in droves to TikTok and Snapchat. There's nothing to navigate by. Here one minute, gone the next. Is there any fixed points by which to get our bearing? And the question is, what on earth is happening? You know, many futurists believe that we are presently moving out of one era and into another quite different era. That the pandemic has irrevocably altered what we thought was normal and that there will not be a return to business as usual when we reach the other side of the pandemic. We may well be living in the overlap of two eras, the past which is going, the future which is coming, and we're not quite in either one. We're living in in-between times, in the overlap of eras. Mark Sayers calls it the grey zone, Leonard Sweet calls it liminal space. How do we live and do discipleship 
in, a, in an uncertain space, when there's little to navigate by. And as we began thinking about this series and thinking about discipleship in liminal space, I went to the scripture and thought, is there any time in scripture where people lived in in-between times? And two immediately sprung to mind. The first was when the children of Israel were um, coming out of Egypt and heading toward the promised land. Egypt had been left behind, but they hadn't arrived in Canaan at their destination, and they spent 40 years in the wilderness. In the wilderness, everything was unfamiliar. The old landmarks that they knew in Egypt had disappeared, and in the wilderness, one sand dune or hill looked like every other sand dune and hill, and one desert bush looked like every other desert bush. How do you navigate in a space like that? How do you not get disorientated like so many people do in wildernesses and in deserts and just end up going round in circles? The second instance of people living in a grey zone occurred in the Old Testament when the kingship of Saul was waning and the kingship of David was starting to rise. But there was a considerable period, anything up to a decade, where one had not completely gone and the other had not completely come. And the people of Israel lived in liminal space. Who were they going to support? Were they going to throw their weight with Saul, believing that the old order would be restored? Or were they going to put their weight with David, believing that things were changing? Very important decision, because to throw yourself in a support of one king, if the other king won, in those days you were basically chased out of the, out of the country uh, if you managed to get out at all. In the midst of that gray zone, which is described, by the way, in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, there is a group of men worth considering. Because in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32, there's a group of men called the sons of Issachar, and they came to throw their weight behind David. And it says of them, the sons of Issachar who had understanding of the times. They were sage or they were wise in discernment, one translation said, and they knew what Israel ought to do. My goodness, doesn't the world need some sons of Issachar in this moment? We need some people who have understanding of the times and know what Israel ought to do. What a blessing for David to have people like that in the liminal space that was between those two eras. The men of Issachar were what we might call semioticians. If you haven't heard that word before, it comes from the study of semiotics. And semiotics is the, of, is the study of signs and symbols. It's the art of making connections, and it's the ability to link together things that at first glance might seem disparate, incongruous, or an unrelated bunch of dots. A good semiotician can look and see relationships and connections where others look and see nothing but a fuzzy muddle. Semiotics is the art of paying attention. It's the art of looking carefully and paying attention. That's a massive challenge for our attention deficit disorder generation. In our, in our society, pay attention to me is the drum roll mantra of celebrity culture. I remember being in, um, in the Gold Coast uh, a few years ago and I was up early as, as is my Norman sitting on a balcony of the apartment that we were staying in and this young lady came down, sat on the beach and proceeded for the next 20 minutes to take selfies in all possible poses. And it was, I mean, after five minutes I'm scratching my head and thinking, how many, it, it's, it's not that good, sweetheart, sorry. Uh, just, just stop it. 
But on and on and on it goes. Pay attention to me, as I say, is the drum roll of our um, celebrity culture. But if you want to be a good semitician, you have to pay attention to other things. Pulitzer Prize winner um, Annie Dillard was once asked by Life magazine, what's the meaning of life? And she responded by saying, pay attention so that creation doesn't have to play to an empty house. Pay attention. I I suspect, however, that in our culture, like the one in Jesus' day, we're in a state of semiotic breakdown. In Jesus' day, they didn't pay attention to the signs. They didn't see what was happening under their nose. And in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees says, you're really good at reading the weather sign, the signs of, of the skies. Red sky tonight means fair weather tomorrow. Red sky in the morning means foul weather all day. But you can't read the obvious signs of the times. You are semiotically blind. You are not paying attention to what is happening around you. You know, in his book, um, Jared Diamond's book, Collapse, How Societies Choose to Fail or Succeed, Diamond argued that the common denominator in all cases of societal collapse that he studied, it wasn't the destruction of the environment, as serious as that may have been, neither was it the economic collapse of those cultures, as universal as that was. He claimed that the one elementary factor in all collapsed societies was the failure to read the handwriting on the wall. There were no semioticians. The writing was on the wall and people couldn't discern it. And we need some Daniels in our culture who are the semioticians and can read the handwriting on the wall. Diamond said, every culture hurled signs high into the heavens for all to see, but every collapsing culture failed to read and heed the flares. And this series that we're about to enter into is really about Issacharians, the sons of Issachar. How do we read signs? How do we navigate on a seascape when, when all our bearings, all of the things that have been there for us in times past are now up for grabs? How do we do discipleship? How do we walk with Jesus in a culture like that? You know, another way of describing the sons of Issachar is uh, using a term that psychologists use when they say they are people with contextual intelligence. Now, I'm sure you've heard of IQ, and most of you would have heard of EQ, emotional intelligence. This is CQ, contextual intelligence. It's the ability to read the signs, to read between the lines. We talk about people who are good at reading the room. It's contextual intelligence. You know, sometimes we talk about politicians giving a speech, and we say of them, it was tone deaf. And what we are trying to say is that they missed the context, that whatever it was that they were talking about completely missed the people that were in the room. People weren't listening. And, and being tone deaf is the exact opposite of contextual intelligence. You know, the tragic thing is I think a lot of people in church life, I think a lot of church leaders are actually tone deaf. They are not reading the signs of the times, pushing their own barrows. They are missing people by the proverbial country mile. In liminal space, in the gray zone, these leaders of the tribe of Issachar had contextual intelligence. 
and they looked around, they saw the signs, they paid attention, they were effective semioticians. If you're at sea on a seascape, being a good semiotician might mean the ability to pick up the wind direction. And I said this morning, you know, for those of you who are old enough to remember when Team New Zealand actually floated a boat rather than flew it, they would sometimes put somebody up the mast, right up the top, and they would be looking and picking the wind shifts and shouting instructions down to the skipper below, on your left, there's a wind shift on the left. And a good sailor has that ability to pick up what the wind is doing. It might involve observing the currents. Is the tide coming in or is it going out? You know, in ancient times, ships didn't have depth finders and, and navigating equipment that we had. And if they were going into a harbour that they hadn't been in before, they wouldn't know where the rocks were, where the shoals were, where the shallow uh, uh, ground was. So what they would do is they would simply wait outside the harbour until full tide. And when the tide was full, they would take that opportunity to go into harbour. And it was a term called obporto. So full tide was obporto. And from that word obporto, we get our English word opportunity. Semioticians are people who recognise the opportunity that's there. Because this time of unbelievable change is not only a threatening time, it is a time of opportunity for those who have eyes to see. Again, not trying to stir up bad memories, but for those of you who did Shakespeare in school and remember this, the play Julius Caesar, famous line where Brutus is speaking to Cassius and he says, there is a time, there is a tide in the affairs of men which taken at the flood leads on to fortune. Omitted all the voyages of their life as bound in shallows and in miseries. On such a sea we are now afloat and we must take the current where, when it serves or lose our ventures. He's talking about Obporto. This is our opportunity, Cassius, if we don't take it now. A time and tide in the affairs of men. We are in that moment. I, I think on such a sea, our culture is now afloat. So we look for the tides, we look for the wind. Sometimes good sailors will be able to tell what's going on by just observing the flotsam and jetsam on the current, on the surface of the water. Uh, that's the material from shipwrecks. Flotsam is the material from a ship that's been wrecked. Jetsam is the material that's been thrown overboard deliberately by sailors to lighten their loads. And the presence of flotsam and jetsam might, might, might indicate that there's, there's trouble out there. Somebody's run into trouble. We better have our eyes peeled so that we don't end up in the same situation. So contextual intelligence, being good Issacharians, if you like, requires from you and I the art of paying attention to our context. And in biblical language, if you want biblical language, what we are talking about is cultivating and developing both discernment and wisdom. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 7. This is the Amplified Bible. It says, get skillful and godly wisdom. It is preeminent. And with all your acquiring, get understanding. Actively seek spiritual discernment, mature comprehension, and logical interpretation. You know what? Our culture is full of knowledge. You can go to Google and find anything you like. We sadly lack wisdom. There's a big difference between the two. You can have a PhD, a master's degree, you can, you can have all your degrees lined up and yet biblically still qualify for the epithet fool. 
In the book of Proverbs, fool doesn't have reference to idiocy. It's not talking about somebody who's simple. It's talking about a moral quality that is lacking. And our culture is filled with really bright intellects who qualify for that title because morally they're adrift. They've got no bearings. The, the word get is used five times in just a few verses in Proverbs chapter 4. Get wisdom, get insight, get wisdom, whatever you get, get wisdom, it says. And the Hebrew word get means it's, it has to be purchased. It's not available just simply to be picked up off the ground. It requires a price. Actually, it's the same term used for a dowry, to pay a bride price. It's the same word used in Proverbs 23, 23, which says, buy the truth and do not sell it. Get wisdom and understanding and instruction. Buy it, purchase it. There's a price to be paid, a determined pursuit to be entered into if you want to be a wise person. Actually, the Living Bible says of Proverbs chapter 4, verse, 17, uh, verse 7, determination to be wise is the first step in being wise. Being wise doesn't happen by accident. You don't stumble into wisdom. It's a determined pursuit. Semioticians, people with contextual intelligence, aren't just lucky. Somebody once said to the great South African golfer Gary Player, man, you have some lucky shots. And he said, I do. And he said, and I've found the more I practice, the luckier I get. The fascinating thing is I pulled up at the lights Actually, it was this morning, but I noticed it again at, the, at night. And I looked up at the big billboard that flashes up here. And, the, and they were advertising a, a ute, and it said, the harder you try, the luckier you get. So how's that? Confirmation. I'll take anything. I, re I read the signs. Sometimes I can be weird. Semioticians read the signs. You don't stumble into wisdom. You are determined to be wise. And you know what? Can I suggest to you that the book of Proverbs be a book that you read with some degree of regularity? You've probably heard me say, but for nearly 35 years now, I read the scriptures in a particular way. And so on the first of the month, I read Psalm 1, and I add 30, and I read Psalm 31, and I add 30, and I read Psalm 61, and I add 30, and I read Psalm 91, and I add 30, and I read Psalm 121, and then I read Proverbs chapter 1. On day 2, I do exactly the same. By the time the month has ended, I've read through Proverbs and Psalms, and I've done it for, for three decades, and there's something about the book of Proverbs being in it with regularity. It's a book about wisdom. It's a book about how to be a wise person. It doesn't happen by accident. And our culture desperately needs a people who, who are wise. A church that is wise in its dealings. And I want to encourage you, in fact, this whole series is going to be about the wisdom of sailors afloat. And, and how do we do discipleship at sea? with nothing to navigate by, nothing fixed. And yet, ancient mariners with no compasses and gyroscopes and all those, they found their way by being incredibly wise. And that's what this series is going to be about. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, Gateway Church, 
www.org.nz.